You're listening ad-free with Wondery Plus. In March of 2019, the French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian, that's the real Jean-Yves Le Drian, is at the United Nations in New York. He's in town to chair a meeting about combating terrorist financing. Improbably, this meeting leads to a soundbite about something else entirely, something I was very interested in. It comes when Le Drian stops to take questions from a group of reporters gathered at UN headquarters. A journalist from the state-owned TV network France 24 asks him about a story that's been in the French news, about scammers impersonating him. Le Drian turns to the questioner and grins. You can't pretend to be me, he says. Si on essaie de se faire passer pour moi, on va en prison. If you pretend to be me, you're going to prison. The reporter follows up. Est-ce que le bureau était, euh, était le même que le vôtre? Did the fake office look like yours? They were pretty good, he says. And unfortunately, there have been victims. He calls the mask impressive and says they, quote, imitated my voice well. But in the end, he says with a shrug, you just can't look like me. Maybe, maybe not. But whoever had tried had made off with nearly $75 million. The man the French police thought had done it was now in jail awaiting trial. Soon, the whole country would finally hear from Gilbert Shickley. From Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music, I'm Evan Ratliff, and this is Persona. Episode 7, The Voice. If Shickley stood a chance at evading French prison a second time, he needed a great attorney, which was easier said than done. His first lawyer was David Olivier Kaminsky, who we met one day in his palatial office in Paris. Being a lawyer, it's always complicated, he said. You're always doing 50 things at once. At the time, Kaminsky was answering messages on his phone, as he was for much of our interview. Dites-moi, je vous écoute. Talk to me, he said. I'm listening. Kaminsky represented Shickley in the Madame G scam a decade before, back when Shickley was extradited to France, escaped, and then was convicted anyway. Did you speak to him after he went back to Israel? Did you say, yes, why yes, did you, why did yeah, you leave? Well, I was in touch with him. I saw him in Israel also. Yeah. Did you try to persuade him to come back and face the uh, judge? Uh, we tried to, but you know, the problem was the warrant. The international warrant for his arrest. He's not silly. He didn't want to be under arrest. So Kaminsky put on a defense without him and lost. Fast forward to 2017. When he was arrested in Ukraine, uh, he immediately called me to be his lawyer. Kaminsky made some filings on Shikli's behalf just after he was extradited from Ukraine. Kaminsky wrote a letter to the judge saying Shikli knew nothing of the Ladrian affair. 
His client wanted to supply a sample of his voice for a vocal comparison to prove his innocence. The judge declined his request, but it's worth keeping Shickley's voice sample offer in mind, given what would come later. A few months after that, Shickley and Kaminsky parted ways. It's unclear exactly why. Oddly, though, Kaminsky then decided to represent Antony Lazarevich, the man Shickley was arrested with in Ukraine, the fat one. So I decided with Gilbert, for the moment, I stop. Hmm. I stop with you. It's a little bit too complicated. So Shickley moved on to some new lawyers, Laurent Sheshman and Jean-Marc Fedida. When we spoke to them, Sheshman seemed to remember a client fondly. I would say that Gilbert, contrary to all of that, is an extremely endearing person, extremely friendly. I sometimes had the feeling that I had a child in front of me who had the same lightness of spirit as a child. People who commit scams very often do so with a form of lightness. Jean-Marc Fedida also talked about Shikli like he was a charming rascal not some kind of hardened or violent criminal. Because there's no physical violence in a scam. People who act in this way do it essentially with cunning, with cleverness, with intelligence, and most of the time with humor. And so they're quite pleasant when one meets them as a lawyer, of course. Fedita's description didn't really line up with some things in the police dossier. In one prison surveillance tape, Shikli describes a meeting with Fedita. His lawyer's chewing gum, and it's apparently driving Shikli nuts. Finally, he tells Fedita, I put a guy into a coma once for doing that, so please stop. I won't tell you twice. Maybe it was the gum. Maybe it was some other reason. But Shikli fired both Fedita and Sheshman. This brought him, just weeks before his trial, to Stefan Sabag. And how did he come to hire you as his lawyer initially? In France, we call this radio prison. Radio prison means that in the prison yard or anywhere else around people who are accused, there are friends who tell them that they have to hire this lawyer or that lawyer. The real network is through word of mouth. Word of mouth in France means such and such a person has defended me well, and so on. And when you looked at the dossier... What was your first thought about the case? It's an interesting case on several levels. One, in terms of the magnitude of this case. Two, because of the methods used by the teams of criminals who committed these crimes. Three, because of the gigantic effort undertaken by the investigation services. And four, because of the personality of the person accused. Gilbert Chicli. Gilbert Chicli is presented in France and in many other countries as a legend. The legend of old. He's seen as the designer, the director, and as the modern Houdini, since he escapes all police forces. On closer examination, this is a case where, if I may say so, and despite the convictions against Gilbert Chicli, there is little evidence. Yes, of course. So where do you come from? I came from New York, and then oh. we have two from Los Angeles. Okay. 
Delphine Millet represented Jean-Yves Le Drian in the case against Chickley. Since neither the police nor the government's prosecutors would talk to the media, they still won't. Millet became a kind of de facto representative of the case. Millet is no stranger to high-profile clients. She spent years as a lawyer at a top criminal defense firm in Paris. In 2012, she started her own firm, Cabinet Millet. Busy day today? Yes, very busy. Because I'm the lawyer of Roman Polanski. Ah. She was defending Polanski, the film director, in a defamation case against a woman he'd called a liar for accusing him of rape. Is it controversial for you to take a case like that? Does it feel like... It is you... a little bit, yes. But when you get really into the file, it's not what you think. We didn't really want to get into it. Eventually, we steered the conversation back to the client we'd come to talk about, Ladrian. It was an odd case. Ladrian was in some sense a victim of the crime. His identity had been stolen, after all. But he wasn't the victim. He hadn't lost any money. Still, he was what's called in France a civil party to the criminal case. He had the right to ask for damages of his own, if anyone was convicted. Four other members of the defense ministry, who'd been impersonated by the scammers, also signed on with Millet. While Shikli was waiting in jail, prosecutors were planning what Millet says was a strong case. Was there any other piece of evidence that you found to be very significant? Oui, il y avait la géolocalisation de... Yes, there was the geolocation of phone calls. There was the method they used. Geolocation. Phone numbers and IP addresses. Tracing back to Israel. There was everything that was found on him when he was arrested in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Then there was the stuff found on Shikli's and Lazarevich's phones. The WhatsApp messages about obtaining a new mask of Prince Albert of Monaco. On a retrouvé sur lui... We found on him all the tools to carry out the same scam as the Le Drian one with Albert of Monaco. So he was just going to switch horses midstream from Le Drian to Prince Albert of Monaco. As Meillet saw it, with all that in hand, the prosecutors were a long way toward a conviction already. But they had something else, something that would eclipse all that other evidence, that the whole case would ultimately rest on. La voix. The voice. La clé de cette escroquerie, the key la to the scam is the voice. Y a une arme qui ne pas There's one weapon la that cannot be learned, and that's the voice. The case went to trial in February of 2020, in front of a judge, no jury. It was early enough in the COVID pandemic that trials were still being held unmasked and in person. Lines of reporters and curious spectators formed outside the courthouse. Le roi de l'arnaque. Voilà comment Gilbert Chicli. Gilbert Chicli, physique d'acteur. 150 victimes arnaque avec vidéoconférence et un masque en silicone à l'effigie de Jean-Yves Le Drian. The investigators had handed the case over to a public prosecutor named Alice Sharif. In her account, Chicli wasn't just a lifetime scam artist. He was a pioneer, the inventor of the president scam. Now he'd come up with something even more diabolical, impersonating one of France's most respected political figures and walking away with $75 million. Is it ingenious, clever, extraordinary? She asked the courtroom. No, it's immoral. And who else had the ability and the temerity to pull it off other than Shikli? She would prove it, she said, with Shikli's voice. The police had over 50 recordings, mostly made by the targets of the scam after they'd figured out something was off. 
All the investigators had had to do was compare the voices of the Ladrian posters to Shickley's voice. If they had a match, they had their man. They'd started with people who they thought could identify Shickley by voice. Ear witnesses, they're called. You know, like eyewitnesses, but for ears. The prosecution introduced statements from three men who knew Shickley's voice. One from France, the other two from Israel. The police had sat down, each of them, and played tapes from the Ladrian scams. All three said that the man they heard, impersonating the minister, was Shickley. But the case didn't just rest on ear witnesses. Instead, they would turn to cutting-edge forensics, a scientific comparison of Shickley's voice and the scammers. First, they'd needed a sample of him talking. So the investigators requested one from Sheshman and Fadida, his lawyers. Before, Shickley had offered up his voice voluntarily to prove his innocence. Now, he declined. As defense, the only way to avoid is to refuse to participate in any way to this process. His new attorneys considered it a lose-lose situation, refused to provide a sample, and the court could take it as a sign of guilt. But provide one, and Shickley would possibly be giving them the evidence for his own conviction. Fortunately for the police, Shickley's voice was easy to obtain. He'd been on TV before, bragging about his old scams. Forensic voice comparison is a staple technique on TV cop shows like CSI and Criminal Minds. Sarah and I requisitioned every audio analysis program on the planet. A kind of audio version of DNA analysis or fingerprint matching. That's our Vic, all right? I ran a voice comparison to his outgoing message and I got a match. Boom. That's CSI. The cops are typically shown squinting at visual waveforms on a screen, usually in some kind of command center-like room with a whole bunch of screens all over the wall. And then, aha, two of them line up, the perfect match. Like this moment on Without a Trace, season two. And one sec. Same caller, both times. Well, it's sort of like that, but not nearly as dramatic. To match Shickley's voice to the recording, the prosecution called on two main experts. The first was an engineer, whose job was to use software to mathematically analyze the voices. The other expert was trained in phonetic analysis. Her job was to listen to the scam recordings and recordings of Shickley's voice, and then try and match the grammar, syntax, rhythms, and speaking styles. The French police wouldn't let either of these experts speak to us, and their names aren't in public court documents. So I'm just going to call them the engineer and the phonetician. Partly, I just like saying phonetician. It's even lovelier in French, actually. Phoneticienne. The engineer's job was much more straightforward, more CSI-like. Just like on TV, a computer would do all the comparison work. Plug the recordings in, the answer comes out. This engineer used a piece of software to compare the voices called BatVox. BatVox was created by a Spanish startup. Nowadays, it's sold by a Massachusetts company called Nuance. It was recently purchased by Microsoft. They describe BatVox as, quote, an expert one-to-one voice biometrics tool designed for criminal identification. But BatVox doesn't actually tell you, oh, this is the guy, or it isn't the guy. It's not binary or definitive like that. Instead, it produces what's called a likelihood ratio, or LR. You start with a hypothesis, say that Gilbert Shickley's voice matches that of the fake minister's voice on a recording. And the LR either supports or opposes that hypothesis. I'm not going to take you through all the math, but suffice it to say that after comparing Shickley's voice from TV interviews with the fake minister's voice, 
The LR generated by Batbox, quote, strongly reinforced the hypothesis. Both voices were shickly. The phonetician's work was a lot more fun, or at least more cinematic to picture in my head. A skilled linguist, headphones plastered to her head, stopping and starting, noting the inflections and eccentricities of the speech. As the phonetician listened, she analyzed the voices along seven different lines, ranging from voice quality, was it hoarse, for example, to speed and breathing, and things like weird grammar ticks and repetitions of syntax. Here's part of how she breaks down one recording of the fake Ladrian. The impersonator speaks at 6.51 syllables per second, has particularly audible breathing, and has a peremptory tone. He offers up eight instances of the word voila. Four of the word allo. And says bah twice. The phonetician applies the same analysis to Shikli's TV interviews. In one, he speaks at 7.23 syllables per second. His breathing is described as loud and hissing, with a shortness of breath. He has a peremptory tone, and he lays on 35 wallahs, 28 allo, and 33 bas. The phonetician found these commonalities between Shikli's speech patterns and some of the voices on the tape. They're fast, confident talkers, and they construct their sentences in sometimes repetitive ways. She finally concludes that the voices on the Ladrian tapes are, quote, compatible with the voice of Gilbert Shikli. The case wasn't all ear witnesses and phoneticians, though. At a certain point, there was a big screen going down behind the president. And I don't know why. They also started to turn off the lights. Everyone was, like, waiting what's going to happen. Carol Olivia Montano was an attorney in the courtroom. It was, like, the first time I was seeing this, honestly, as if we were in a, in a crime court presenting the knife or... No, no. The judge played the tapes for the assembled crowd so they could hear it for themselves. She was going on, on her laptop, selecting the, the audio file that she had and playing it. And that's it. And was her laptop screen showing on the screen? Yeah, but it was just the, the audio, the audio of the fraud. So you had everyone commenting in the room. Ah, do you think it's his voice? Do you think it's his voice? Like Everyone had uh, something to say about it. For Delphine Maillet, Jean-Yves Ledrian's attorney, it was a dramatic revelation of the prosecution's smoking gun. The expertise was one thing, but you could hear it with your own ears. You didn't even have to be an expert to be certain that it was Gilbert Chicli. With a voice, you have something of a psychological nature that makes it recognizable. For example, you right here, I hear you, I think... If I heard your voice in a month, I'd probably know it's you. There's something in your memory that makes you remember one another's voices. So it's not an exact science, but there's a human ability to recognize other people's voices. But is there? Do we have an innate ability to remember and recognize voices? That's next. The idea that you can listen to two voices and figure out if they're the same person makes a lot of intuitive sense. We all know voices are distinct. We can recognize our friends and family in an instant. 
And when I listened to the tapes, like the people in the courtroom had, it was hard to doubt that some of them sounded like Shickley. Listen and see what you think. Here's a recording of the scammer impersonating Ladrian, calling the Aga Khan in 2016. Oui, bonjour, Sur Maltese, comment allez-vous? Oui, bonjour. Bonjour, bonjour, je savais que vous étiez très occupé aujourd'hui. Alors, moi je vous appelle parce que nous devons vous envoyer les fonds. Now here's Shickley in an interview with France's ITV4. That's the famous one from 2010, right after he escaped back to Israel. Euh, le voleur, quand il vole quelque chose, évidemment, il est obligé de courir et de se sauver. Or, euh, l'escroc, il peut rester, s'arranger, discuter et, euh, et éviter, euh, bah, éviter de se sauver. Voilà, donc ça, ça c'est la différence entre un escroc et un voleur. What do you think? Let me play it for you again. The Aga Khan tape. Bonjour, bonjour. Je savais que vous étiez très occupé aujourd'hui. Alors, moi, je vous appelle parce que nous devons vous envoyer les fonds. The TV interview. Le voleur, quand il vole quelque chose, évidemment, il est obligé de courir et de se sauver. Or, l'escroc, il peut rester, s'arranger, discuter. Sound like the same guy? Shickley's got a distinct voice. A deep smoker's voice. I mean, I've heard his voice more than you have. But still, for me, that's him. Well, maybe. As it turns out, that kind of confidence in our ability to compare voices, or even for computers to compare voices, it isn't actually justified. It was used a, a lot in different movies, and it's a, a big problem for us. Jean-Francois Bonastra is a professor of computer science at Avignon University in France. He specializes in speech processing and speaker recognition. Usually, if you take randomly someone in the street and ask if she or he is able to recognize people by voice, the answer will be, yes, I'm able to recognize someone. If you take these people for a scientific experience and you ask to the person to uh, recognize people with very short uh, sentences, the answer will be close to random. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's not true. We are able to recognize some people by the voice in some context. He gave an example. If your phone rings at 7 on a Sunday morning and your mom calls you every week at 7 a.m., your brain is primed to expect your mom's voice on the phone, which is essentially what happened with the tape I just played for you. You weren't hearing a random recording of a random voice and trying to identify it. I prompted you to think it might be Shickly. So your brain was already working to match them before you even heard a thing. It made me wonder about all those ear witnesses. The three guys, one Frenchman and two Israelis, who the police played the tapes for, who said, yeah, that's the guy. Were they prompted too? Turns out, it was much worse than that. One of the Israelis was a guy the police had connected to the crime, named Ariel Journo. Some of the phone numbers in the dossier traced back to him. One of them had been used in the scam itself. The investigators also had records showing Journo traveled to Hong Kong and Poland, where bank transfers had been made in 2015 and 2016. He'd been to Ukraine, too, where Shikli and Lazarevich had been arrested. When they brought him in for questioning, Journo denied having anything to do with the scam. He said the phone number wasn't his. The trips to Hong Kong and Poland were vacations, and the Ukraine records were just wrong. The police asked him what connections he had to Shikli. None, he told them. I know him because he appears in the newspapers. There was a movie about him. And then, at the end of the interrogation, they pulled out a recorder and played one of their surveillance tapes from the scam. They wanted to know, did Journo recognize the voice? 
For me, it's Gilbert Shikli, he said. The other Israeli they asked, a guy named Aaron Benabu, was also a suspect. He also denied any knowledge of the scam. Benabu's name was actually on some of the bank accounts. The police at one point had suspected he might be the fat one and running the whole thing. In his interview, Benabu said he had met Shikli through a friend. The police then asked him if he had any idea who could have pulled off the Ladrian scam. The only person crazy enough to do that, he said, is Gilbert Shikli. Again, the police prepared to play a snippet of the recordings. This time, they prefaced the audio, just like I did with you. They told him, the voice of Gilbert Shikli has been formally identified as being behind several of the attacks. Then they asked him if he recognized the voice on the tape. He replied, yes, I'm certain. It's Gilbert Shikli. No need to make me listen to it anymore. And the Frenchman who identified Shikli's voice? Yep, also a suspect. As it turned out, Giorno and Benabou were never charged in the case, although Giorno was indicted on separate fraud charges in Israel. And as of 2019, authorities couldn't locate him. The Frenchman was charged and convicted for a minor role. Imagine an eyewitness to a crime, who's also a prime suspect in that crime, being brought in to look at a lineup of possible other suspects. And right before he's shown the lineup, the police say, by the way, A lot of evidence says Jacques was the one who did this. And then the lineup is just one person, and it's Jacques. That's basically what the police were doing here. We think this is the guy. What do you think? I guess my question is, where does that fall in a scientific approach? No, that's clear that you increase a lot the uh, bias. So if you are a suspect, uh, you are not a good person to do the analysis, to try to analyze analyze, the voice of another suspect. That's evident uh, for a scientific point of view. Again, in case you didn't catch it, Bonastra says what is maybe obvious. Having a suspect in a crime do the voice analysis on another suspect? Not great science. Not science at all, really. Okay, so maybe ear witnesses aren't reliable. But what about the experts? What about Batvox? Turns out, it's not quite as scientifically foolproof as advertised. First of all, the conditions of the recordings matter. A lot. Voice comparison is most reliable when analysts compare two voices saying the same things in the same high-quality recording environment, like in a lab. If I have your voice mm-hmm. in, in, in this setup where you are sitting in your office with a very good microphone and a very clear environment, right. uh, even if I have a very good example of your voice, maybe it's not the good one to be used as a reference with a 911 call, for example. So he's saying, when you have two samples from two different contexts, that makes for a bad comparison, which was the case with the Shikli samples, one from TV, the other recorded on a phone line. But even if they'd had similar samples, there's another issue. Your voice isn't actually like a fingerprint, or DNA, not at all. There is no voice print. The concept of voice print is uh, a fallacy. Uh, and the voice is very dependent on your uh, pathological state. What your voice sounds like depends on the state you're in. Are you tired or not? Are you happy or not? Did you drink a little bit before to come uh, or not? And a lot of things like that. So your emotion, uh, your attitude, the context, style of speech, uh, all of this is changing a lot your voice and uh, adding a lot of variability. Your voice changes as you age. It changes if you smoke, if you have a cold, if you're angry, 
It changes if you try to change it. And then there was the software itself, Batbox. Setting aside how irritating it would be to have your fate in the hands of something that sounds like it's made in Bruce Wayne's cave, Batbox's claims are open to debate. There was, first of all, very little public data available to evaluate the software's effectiveness across different situations. Courts are left to trust that the numbers Batfox spits out actually mean what the operators say they mean. But even if you did trust the software completely, when you looked closely at Shickley's results, they actually weren't definitive at all. They were all over the map. For some of the recordings, Batfox did support the hypothesis that a particular voice on the tapes was Shickley. But for others, it didn't. The experts in the court never say it's him or not him. Mm-hmm. So it's always a soft decision. It's never a hard decision. When in the movies, it's always a, a strong decision. Yeah. We find the guy in the database and we could say it's him or not him. On the actual question, who is on these tapes? The engineer could say only that Shickley might be some of the voices on some of them. Others, likely not. And even where the software supported the hypothesis that it was Shickley, the result was often qualified as, quote, very weakly assured. We contacted Nuance, the company that sells Batbox, with the concerns we'd heard from Bonastra and other experts, and seen in the academic literature. They replied that Batbox can handle poor quality recordings, and that the general area of voice analysis has been studied for decades. They said, quote, there is a standard methodology to present biometric evidence in court, regardless of the type, DNA, fingerprint, iris, facial, voice. But in the U.S., many courts don't even accept this kind of voice forensics as evidence, because there is no universal standard to evaluate it. It's not junk science. There are a lot of commercial contexts where voice comparison is useful. But according to many experts, it's just not reliable enough to send someone to prison. In France, scientific community took a position a long time ago asking for stopping the voice comparison in the court until we could demonstrate this evaluation to evaluate the system. I'm still on this position. It's a difficult position. We are trying to do our best. Bonastra told me that Delphine Meillet, Jean-Yves Ledrian's lawyer, actually asked him to put together an expert analysis for the court which was odd because he usually testifies for the defense in voice cases. But he examined the evidence and wrote a report saying many of the things he said to me. I looked in the court file. His report wasn't there. But what about the phonetician? The speech patterns and repetitive words? All those bas and the voilas? Well, sure. Shickley did seem to love ba a kind of habitual exclamation used to start a sentence. But then, a lot of French speakers do. In fact, most of the words highlighted in the report are incredibly common in everyday French. In terms of phonetics, counting the word is not relevant, according to me, Mm. for this kind of analysis. Even more glaring was the lack of any wider analysis of how people speak in general. How unique were these patterns? How likely was it that there might be someone else out there, even more compatible than Shikli? It's not enough to say that my voice is low. What we want to know is how many people in the population have a voice like me, uh, low in the same level than me. But Astra says that scientifically, these questions rendered the whole endeavor a pointless exercise. The phonetic expert was not very good. 
I don't want to take too much time of that, but it was absolutely subjective and without any uh, scientific reference. In the trial, the prosecution only submitted one report from the phonetician. She'd been meant to conduct a second analysis, but it never showed up. The judge wrote to the engineer asking where the report was. The engineer replied that the phonetician is currently ill for a long period, and we don't have another qualified expert to carry out this expertise. We managed to track down the phonetician. She didn't want to talk. She'd moved on to another profession. But her bio at her new job offered up an explanation for why. A few years ago, she said, she'd started suffering from hearing loss and tinnitus, a ringing in the ears. In a case full of oddities, you could add this one to the pile. Of the two experts charged with establishing whether Gilbert Shickley was the voice behind the fake minister, one of them had gone partially deaf while trying to figure it out. So, just to recap, the ear witnesses were compromised. The Bat Fox conclusions were tentative at best, dubious at worst. The phonetician was not exactly at the top of her game. Seems like courtroom gold for the defense. And Stefan Sabag, Chickley's trial attorney, did challenge the validity of the voice forensics. There's no fingerprint equivalent for your voice, he correctly pointed out. He objected to the judge playing the tapes in the courtroom. La présidente d'audience va décider... The presiding judge decides to let the investigator the prosecution, the defense, the civil parties, and the courtroom, which is crowded, breathless, hear the voices. And what happens? From that moment, everyone in the room becomes an expert in voice analysis. Everyone. <laughs> everyone was an expert. <laughs> Some people stand up and say, it's not him. Others say, it's him. Others smile. Others get annoyed. Myself, I say, what have we fallen into? But Sebag didn't introduce any experts of his own. He told us Shickley had hired him too close to the trial to make it feasible. Instead, Sebag floated the more fanciful idea that someone could have made a synthetic copy of Shickley's voice and then used that in the scam. Shickley's overall defense was basically just... It wasn't me. I had nothing to do with the scam, no matter what was on those phones seized in Ukraine. It was hard for any of it to register anyway, in the din of the trial. Carol Olivia Montano described it to me as a kind of circus. People were waiting online to get in the court, and not a family or friends, I mean, like, a lot of people. As for those who were family and friends, they were causing their own drama. Also, we had a fight between the wife of Gilbert and his mistress. They were both wearing high heels, full makeup, Chanel bags. They grabbed the hair of each other. They were throwing the bags at each other. When you're on trial for the scam of the century, it's less than ideal for your wife and mistress to be taking swings at each other in open court. And so the next day, we had a press article saying, like, the two women of Gilbert fighting in court with Chanel bags. You can imagine the effect on the judge. It was a disaster. No, but really, everything around was a disaster for them. Thomas, the CEO from the southwest of France, whose company had been scammed, was also a civil party to the case. And I decided not to have lawyer to go by myself, because 
I knew that I had nothing to get, but I wanted to, to see what happened. He traveled to Paris to see with his own eyes the man who'd stolen 600,000 euros from him, nearly put his company into bankruptcy. Perhaps it was good for my psychological um, balance. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, therapy. It was a good therapy for me. It might be good therapy to see Shikli convicted. What he actually saw was Shikli the performer, speaking directly to the gallery, interrupting the prosecutor midstream, dramatically taking off and throwing down his glasses. And he was completely crazy. He shouted, interrupted, it was more or less fascinating. When under direct questioning from the prosecutor or judge, Shikli would wander the witness box like an actor on a stage. To Thomas, it seemed briefly like Shikli might find a way out from under it all. But again and again, Sharif, the prosecutor, trapped him in his own lies. Anytime this procureur asked a question, showed to the court that he was lying. At this time, you said that. At this time, she succeeded to push him and make him impossible to prove that he was not guilty. At certain points, it seemed to dawn on Shikli that his mythology, spread by the media and by him, was threatening to bring him down. He made a point to say that he'd never gone to acting school, as he'd claimed years before. He declared that he wasn't the inventor of the president's scam, even turning to the journalists in the gallery and begging them to correct the record. He was being accused by notoriety. I have a problem, he finally said. I have the pathology of mythomania. I tell myself movies. I like to be interesting. I like to say things that aren't true. I'm a mythomaniac, a madman. How then, the judge asked, can we be sure that you're not telling us stories today? No, he said. Today, I speak to you from the heart. I remember at the end of the trial, Gilbert was doing a little show during the trial, and his lawyer had to plead very, very late, like at one o'clock in the morning, something like that. And the French law says that the prévenu has the last word. The defendant gets the last word. So Gilbert, Chicli, what do you have to say? It was Chicli's final chance to sway the judge, to work his magic on her. Instead, he turned to Delphine Maillet, the lawyer for Jean-Yves Le Drian. And he said, I have a question for you. With all the scene around, you know, the glasses, walking around with a finger up. And he says, while we were listening the recording of the guy on the phone who made the fraud. Did you say that you did not recognize my voice in one of the recording? Meillet, he's saying, had admitted out loud that it wasn't him on one of the tapes the judge had played in the courtroom. So the lawyer of the minister doesn't want to answer. And he goes again. Well, you see, there is a lot of people in the court. And lots of them are my friends. Lots of them have phones. And we heard you saying that. He corners her. You've been recorded. You're on tape. So what do you say to my question? Do you admit that you didn't know if it was me? Imagine the lawyer of the minister. She had to stood in court and said, yes, it's true, Mr. Shikli. On one of the recordings, I did not recognize your voice. And Gilbert said, thank you very much. Have all a good night. Of course, I don't have any recording of your voice, but that was important for me. 
and he left the courtroom. No one recorded her. It was a lie. His final words, in front of the judge who would decide his guilt or innocence, had been a little arnak. One last con. The judge found Shickley guilty on all counts in the Ladrion scam. She accepted the voice analysis from the engineer and the phonetician, even the ear witnesses. And the backdrop for all of it was Shickley's own past admissions. He had said, the judge noted, that he could, quote, sell anything to anyone, that he had mastered the telephone, and that he was the best at it. There were six lesser defendants in the case. Five of them were also found guilty on various charges, including Antony Lazarevich. He was sentenced to seven years in prison. Several other minor figures were also convicted. Sylvain Rouget, who had spent three years in Polish detention after being arrested in the bank, got two additional years in France. Sebastian Zawadzki, the Polish national who'd sent Rouget to the bank, got five years in absentia and is now living in Poland. Gilbert Shickley was already facing seven years in prison from his 2015 conviction in the Madame G case. The judge gave him 11 more. How surprised were you at the verdict? When you saw the verdict, how did, how did you respond? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Boom. Laurent Scheschman, Shickley's former lawyer, tracked the case closely through the media. So please. Horror. Tristesse. Grosse tristesse. Sadness. Big sadness. Really sad. Very big sadness for Gilbert. And for the work that we had done. Very big sadness for him, really. It's a terrible thing to say. You're going to say that this is a defense attorney speaking. But he's not, he's someone who is in the game. But he's not a mean, dangerous person. She's right. That does sound like a defense attorney speaking. Although, in this case, a defense attorney who had been fired by her client. It was hard to get away from the fact that ultimately, the long sentence was less about the crime than about who Shickley was or claimed to be. He had created a character called Gilbert Shickley, larger than himself, larger than life. That character had been convicted in the Ladrian scam, and it had taken the real man down with it. No matter if he did this one or another, some people will say that he has been convicted for the, we say in French, pour l'ensemble de son œuvre. For his whole body of work. So, case closed, as far as the media and the spectating public were concerned. It was a simple story in the end. The man who'd started it all had done it again. But then, there were a couple of other oddities in the case. Things that occurred to me only as we went back through the Tiger dossier in the last few months. The first one was this. A year before the trial, when Gilbert Chicli was in French custody, someone else pulled it off, or almost did. They impersonated Ladrian got a multi-million dollar transfer that was blocked at the last minute. Three guys were indicted for it in Israel. Three names who'd never even appeared in the dossier. Were they copycats or the real thing? And then there was an even more striking fact, something I didn't notice myself for a long time. Of the 52 original recordings of the scam, the most important of them came from Anand Kurach, the Turkish businessman who'd lost $47 million. 
The key voice on the Courage tapes was of someone impersonating Ladrian's chief of staff. And those conversations, they'd taken place in English. And not broken English either. The phonetician even noted in a report that, quote, this French speaker is sufficiently comfortable with the English language to switch from one language to another, depending on who he's talking to, or within the same sentence. So whoever the impersonator was, he was likely to be fluent in English, fluent enough to pull off a scam that netted $47 million. But because they weren't in French, the voice analysts had simply discarded the parts of the tapes that were in English. They didn't even analyze them. Staring at this fact in the Tiger dossier, a new and crucial question occurred to me. Can Shikli speak English? We started asking everyone we spoke to whether he could. Friends, lawyers. Do you know if Gilbert speaks English? Uh, I don't think so. We're talking about guys who didn't go to school, grew up like uh, how they could. No, Gilbert definitely doesn't speak English. Almost all of them said the same thing. They'd never heard him speak English. Not a word. So there are two possibilities here. One is that Shikli was secretly fluent in English and somehow kept it from everyone. The other is that he couldn't have run the Courage scam, the biggest part of the Ladrian affair, by far. And that would mean that Shikli was telling the truth, at least in this case. He'd been convicted by a story, a myth, and not by the facts. Maybe he amused them too much, took the story too far. Okay, last question. So... We've spent a lot of time looking into this, and if the voice analysis is questionable or invalid, and Gilbert doesn't speak English, and he would always say, everyone knows who did this, but no one will say, including him. That means there's someone out there with 50 to 70 million euros. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know who this is? (laughs) Joker <laughs> Because we would like to know who it is Are you a cop? She asked me No, but uh, it's an interesting part of Gilbert's story If it's not him it's someone and they're out there with 50 million euros I'm not trying to get them in trouble but I would like to know Ivan, the nom du responsable était dans le dossier The name of the person in charge is in the file, she said. The Tiger dossier. Oui? Oui. D'accord. Si vous avez lu le dossier, je pense que vous connaissez son nom. If you've read the file, Fadida added, I think you know the name. Oui. If I say it, will you nod? No. Next time, on the final episode of Persona. If you're clever enough to do it just with the phone, you don't need to use the mask and all this tralala. So to me, it's not the same people. This is subject to the investigation's secrecy. I don't have to answer those questions. Hello. Hello, Shalom. Shalom,
Persona is an original series from Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music. The show is written and hosted by me, Evan Ratliff. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Our producer is Sophie Bridges. Our associate producer is Chris Knapp. Production assistance from Natalie Paird, with additional help on this episode from Emmanuel Hapsis. Project management by Courtney Harrell. Joel Lovell is our editor. Additional reporting by Shirley Ascari and David Iverson. Translation by Leela Bajranath and Jen Rue. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman and Adeline Sear, whose voice you may recognize. The key to the scam is the voice. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Original music by Carla Kilstead and Jeremy Flower. Additional percussion by Matthias Bossi. Our artwork is by Kiyomi Morrison. Music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Production legal provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. And Fair Use Council provided by Katie Ali Mohammadi Crown at Donaldson Califf. Thank you to Emmanuel Faranya at Paris Today University and Jen Owen from Owen Forensic Services for their expertise. Special thanks also to Margot Ferran, Paul Luneau, Clay Geneste, and Alban Mio. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our producers are Eliza Mills and Stephanie Wachneen, and our managing producer is Candice Manriquez-Ren. The executive producers at Amazon Music and Wondery are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. Thanks for listening. Thank you.